Amen. You may be seated, as you already are. Uh, yeah. um, I thought, as we were singing that song, uh, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, All Other Ground is Sinking Sand. I saw a, a meme the other day that came across the internet, and it said something along the lines of, my seven-year-old self would be really disappointed to know that quicksand is not nearly as big a problem as I thought it was going to be back then. <laughs> Anybody have those same fears when you were like a kid, six, seven years old, that like quicksand was everywhere and it was going to be a major problem that we had to face throughout life? Uh, maybe not so much the case in the United States. I don't see a lot of quicksand. But the image that we see is kids on cartoon shows or, or, or television programs of someone sinking in a pit of quicksand is the image that my mind went back to as we sung that chorus that all other ground, all all other ground is sinking sand if we're not on the rock that is Christ. And, and that, that all means anything. And in, in, in the day and age that we live in and the times that are the way that they are right now, a lot of folks are trying to put their feet on something solid. But none of it, all other ground is sinking sand. None of it is going to be a sure foundation. Whether that, that thing that you're trying to put your hope in is, is family, it can be taken from you in an instant. Whether it's your health, it can be taken from you in an instant. Uh, whether it's our, our government, our nation, it can change in an instant. All other ground is sinking sand. And so if you're here this morning, and I mean, we're not in the text or the sermon yet, but if, if you're here this morning and, and your hope, your, your trust, your joy is in anything else, know this morning that the words of that song are true. All other ground is sinking sand. And whatever your feet may be upon right now, if it's not Christ, the rock that is Christ, It'll crumble. It'll eventually crumble and it'll leave you in a place where you're dissatisfied. It'll leave you in a place where there is no hope or joy or comfort unless that foundation is Christ. He's died on the cross. He's given his life so that sinners like me and you can have eternal life. That's our only hope in life and death, that foundation that is Christ. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up uh, to 1 Timothy with me. We'll be in 1 Timothy starting in chapter 3 this morning as we're making our way through this study. Um, if you do a, a Bible reading plan, and I, I hope that you do, hope you have some sort of practice, uh, routine set up where you're reading through the scriptures. But if you do, and you come to passages like First Corinthians or First Thessalonians chapter three, you may get to these passages like this. There's others like it in Titus chapter one, and uh, and you may get to it and skip over it, or be tempted to, or or at, a, at, a, at least to skim over it, read it quickly, because maybe you think that passages like this one really only apply to, to Matt and Michael, right? Our staff pastors at the church. Or, if not them, maybe our elders, the other four men that shepherd our congregation at Poplar Spring alongside Matt and Michael. But this would be wrong thinking. Uh, we need to, each and every one of us, understand that church leadership affects every follower of Christ. If I polled you this morning between our two rooms and and outside and on the, the, the folks that are listening in their cars this morning, if we polled you and, uh, and gave you a survey, I'm sure you could recall former pastors that greatly helped you in your walk with Christ. Maybe even your, your spiritual father, your father in the faith that led you to faith in Christ and began to teach you how to follow Jesus. On the other hand, many of you could probably tell nightmare stories of pastors um, that, that harmed or hurt your walk with Christ. Maybe because of adultery or moral failure or hypocrisy. Maybe you even know people that walked away from the faith altogether because they saw that sort of failure or hypocrisy in their leadership, their pastors or their, their deacons. So for all of these reasons, we need to consider and consider often what the Bible has to say about the expectation for God's leaders, leaders of God's church. And so uh, that's what we'll do these next two weeks as we study through the book of, of 1 Timothy that's where Paul heads with these, these next exhortations. In particular, this morning, the first seven verses of chapter 3, we're going to observe what it means to be an elder and the qualifications for being a, a pastor and elder. So, but before we do, let me give you some sort of foundational uh, truth, background that's going to set up the, the rest of what we're going to discuss this morning in the text, in particular as we talk about elders. Now, that word is pretty common in the Bible, but for various reasons. If you go back to the Old Testament, the word elders, uh, they were those that assisted Moses, right? As the Israelites came out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, the elders were those that at times even propped up Moses and assisted him in leading God's people. 
In the New Testament, when you get to the New Testament, that word elder refers to someone of mature age, right? Places like 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Or it can also refer to spiritual leaders in the Jewish community, right? We have to remember that, that Judaism was a faith and a, a people, a nation of people. And so oftentimes you'll see that word in the New Testament referring to someone who's a leader, even in a, in a civic way. Um, in a similar way, when we at Poplar Spring say that we want to honor our elders, our elderly, our senior adults, we do things like a, a senior adult luncheon. So they use the word elder in that sense in the New Testament. And to be clear, though, what we mean when we say it here and what we see in the scriptures is that to be elderly, older, an older person, doesn't make you an elder in the biblical sense of the word that Timothy's going to get at this morning, or that Paul's going to get at in, in Timothy this morning. Nor does being an elder in the biblical sense of the word require you to be a certain age, as we're going to see as we study through the rest of of the book of 1 Timothy, or the letter to 1 Timothy. So, same word, different meaning, and we see both of them in the, in the New Testament. The final way that we see this word, elder, being used in the New Testament is how we mean it here at Poplar Spring. You see the word transitioned as the, the gospel went forth, and as Jews and Gentiles became followers of Jesus, the word shifted from being something that was primarily used in the Jewish community to being someone who's a leader of the Christian church. That's how Paul's using it here in 1 Timothy 3. That's how it's used in the rest of the New Testament, in particular the book of Acts and the epistles. Nearly every church that we read about in the New Testament is specifically said to have had elders. And this comes from Acts chapter 20, the model for it. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 31 makes that point. So we need to also clarify that the, the New Testament uses other words to talk about this same role of elder. Again, still laying some foundation for you so that when we get to the text, some of these things will make more sense. The New Testament uses the word pastor, places like Ephesians chapter 4, and overseer, in places like Titus chapter 1. And we know that these words are being used interchangeably in, pl in places like first, uh, or Titus chapter 1 because Paul uses the term elder in Titus 1 verse 5, and then he uses the word overseer in Titus 1 verse 7. So literally the same passage of scripture, he uses uh, elder and overseer to talk about the same position of leadership. Paul does the same thing in Acts chapter 20, except for in Acts chapter 20, he actually uses three words. He uses overseer, shepherd, and elder, all three of those in the same chapter referring to the same office of leadership, the office of pastor, which we know from Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm giving you a lot of texts, Ephesians chapter 4, pastor and shepherd are the same in the context of the New Testament church. So all of that to say, let me wrap this up, and if you want these texts, I can give these to you later. All of that to say, when you hear pastor, elder, overseer, or shepherd, they are the exact same office, and those words are being used interchangeably in Paul's writings to various churches and in the rest of the New Testament. Now, this is different from churches around us, even many Baptist churches around us. Now, I'm, I'm not saying, hear me clearly, I'm not saying that those churches are in sin or even that they've necessarily done something wrong uh, in the way that they function. They've simply added categories of, of minister or director or coordinator or pastor, elder, and assigned duties to that title that are separate categories from the, one that the, Bible, the ones that the Bible explicitly uh, gives to us, right? Does that make sense? So uh, a pastor or a minister can mean one thing at one church, and we don't necessarily see that category in Scripture, right? So when you hear us at Poplar Spring talk about pastors, elders, and even less often overseers or shepherds, we're meaning the exact same thing. So Pastor Michael, Pastor Jay... Pastor Wiley, Elder um, David, or Elder Paul, these are, these are the same terms. We're using them interchangeably. At Poplar Spring, we have two, Michael and myself, that are full-time. Vocationally, we make our living by being a pastor here at Poplar Spring. And then we have four elders that are vocationally uh, working other jobs and that volunteer their time to shepherd you, the church. So one final note before we jump in that's sort of foundational for us. We recognize that the term elder um, in the New Testament almost always occurs in the plural, right? 
When you get to the Bible and you look at the New Testament, throughout Scripture, you'll see certain elders highlighted or mentioned by name. I mean, we're in the book of 1 Timothy. It's written to an elder, a pastor named Timothy. And so you'll see that. You'll see that from time to time. A specific elder is mentioned. But when it talks about the office of elder, the position of elder in the local church, it is almost 100% of the time plural. And it's mentioned having more than one in the church. Now, this shows us a picture of what we see in the New Testament, that it's not a dictatorship. The pastor's not to rule with an iron fist, a dictator over the the church, but it's also not a democracy, that every voice is, 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 uh, is, is weighing in on the decision and making decisions such that there's no unity because everyone's offering a a different opinion. What we see in the scriptures is that Christ, that's what the scriptures show us, Jesus entrusts elders, plural, men to lead the church, to lead the congregation. Now, next week, we'll see, as we dive in a little more deeply and see the qualifications for a deacon, we'll see how these play out, in particular at Poplar Spring, the elder and the deacon and how they function here at Poplar Spring. But what we have to see, at least foundationally for us before we begin, is that a plurality of elders is not only a healthy and good thing, functionally or practically speaking, it's also a biblical thing. We see it throughout the New Testament. Again, that's a contrast from a lot of churches today, uh, and uh, that's not my critique of them. They just function differently, and, uh, and so let's get into the text this morning. I've given us some foundation, but, but here's, here's where we're headed in the, in the text this morning. The first seven verses of chapter three, one main point this morning. Some of your eyes just lit up. You're like, it's going to be a short sermon today. One main point, 11 subpoints. <laughs> so let's dig in. Our main point is more of a question. What is required of an elder in the Bible, in Scripture? What's required of an elder in Scripture? Let's uh, dig into the text. Let me just say, too, that as we're going through these qualifications, these are what are required. These things are required of an elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer. But that doesn't mean that you get a pass this Sunday, that you get to just kind of sit back and, well, this is what we have to think of, of our elders, our pastors. Uh, yes, these are required for an elder, but ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart this morning because they, they shouldn't be uncommon for you, right? It should be something that we would all aspire to as the Holy Spirit works in us. Uh, several of these are even fruit of the Spirit, fruits that we see would be evidence of the Spirit living in us. And so while they're required of a pastor, they should be seen in you as well. And so let's dig in and see what the text has for us, see what the Lord has for us this morning. Look at verse 1. Paul says this, hear the word of the Lord, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So the first one that we see in this list of requirements for what an elder should be is we see his his aspiration. Paul begins by affirming that to be an elder, one should want to, desire to be an elder. Now that doesn't mean that everyone that desires to be an elder will be an elder, but that everyone that is an elder should desire to be an elder. Does that make sense? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 uh, says the same thing. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. Then Peter says this, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. This is what Peter says of the elder, that, that he should desire, he should have something inside his heart where he, he's compelled to, by God, shepherd the people of God eagerly. Not because he's being compelled by by money or by someone else who's put this pressure on him to do a certain thing. The Apostle Paul hopes that men will want to desire to lead God's people. In the same way, church, I've prayed this week that there will be men and even young men, boys, that even at a a young age would have this desire deep in their heart to, to shepherd God's people, right? And, and this is to, to, to say that this is not a, a second fiddle type of option, that, that this is what you do when other life plans and choices don't work out. Or, or this is not even what you do when you're just really spiritual and you like studying the Bible a lot. Now, we'll see in a second. That should be the case, too. You should love to study God's Word. But just because you love to study God's Word and you're really spiritual doesn't mean you should be an elder this aspiration means that, that, that you have a God-given desire deep in your heart and soul to care for, to love, to protect, to train, to lead, to equip his bride, the church. I began to feel this call in my life as a, as a college student 
I was about to graduate from LSU and go into medical school, and um, that was the, the plan for my life for as long as I could remember. That was where I was headed. That's what I had a desire to do, and I wasn't even considering anything else. And by God's grace and in his providence, I went to a, a college retreat with a, another church, um, just some buddies that had asked me to come, and the speaker that weekend asked this, this one question. I don't know what else he preached about. I can't even tell you what text he preached that weekend. But he asked this one question towards the end of the, the sermon, uh, one of our gatherings. And this one question changed the course of my life. And I'm, I'm not overstating that. This is the question. He said, have you, and he's speaking to a room of 100 people. But in that moment, I knew the Holy Spirit was speaking just straight at me. He said, have you ever considered that the goal and trajectory that you've set for your life might not be the one that God ordained for your life. It blew me away. That I knew I was a believer. I knew I was a follower of Christ. I would say I was walking with Christ and reading the Word and studying the Word, and I loved going to church, but I'd never considered that my love of health care and helping and people and being in the hospital and helping the sick could be a good desire, but not the one that God had in his, in his sovereign plan for my life. And so I wrestled with God for a, for a while, for months. I wrestled with God in this call and this, this idea of pastoral ministry because my dad was a pastor, and I would have told you, no, that's dad's gig. He's, he's a good pastor, and he's been my pastor my whole life, but that's his thing. I'm headed this way, and I wrestled with God. And then uh, this, this, this one Sunday before my dad began to preach, he was still my pastor at this time, I went up to him and I said, I know God's called me to ministry. And his jaw and eyes, jaw hit the floor, eyes got this big, and he, he was kind of shocked and taken back. And he was shocked even more than me because he had just paid for a pre-med degree. Um, he said this to me, and I, I won't forget it. He said, if God is calling you, if there's a call of God on your life, and this is not just some passing desire or some fleeting desire, then you won't be able to run from it. Because God's put this inside of you. This sort of God-given aspiration is unshakable. And he was right. And 13 years later, here we are. And here's what I'm praying for some of you. Some of you men that may be listening uh, online or, or even in the other room that I can't see you in your eyes right now, but I'm praying for you that, that God would give you this unshakable desire, aspiration to lead God's family, to lead his household, to lead his church. And that deep and lasting desire is unshakable. And I pray that that would be the case for some of the men even here right now this morning. Paul continues, not only though an aspiration to be an elder, but there are some other things too. In particular, we're going to look at these. Number two, his reputation. His reputation. Look at verse two. It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Paul begins with this general kind of umbrella type uh, charge about the elder's reputation. And this is referring to his observable conduct, right? This is, this is really the bookends. These are the bookends for all of what he's going to say in the next five verses because he starts, verse 2, by talking about being above reproach. And then when we get to verse 7, the last one is he's going to talk about your reputation among outsiders. And so he begins and ends the qualifications for an elder by talking about your, your, your reputation, and this idea here is that the, the, the pastor would be above reproach. And that idea means that, that, that the pastor is not going to be perfect, right? I'm not perfect. Michael's not perfect. And, and, and all of our, our lay elders will tell you they're not perfect. It's not that the elders to be perfect. It's that he be, uh, uh, in, in his life and in the way that he lives, blameless. There's a difference there, right? Not that he's perfect, but that he's blameless. If he was perfect, if he had to be perfect, then Jesus would be the only qualified elder to have ever lived. But he, has, he is to be blameless, uh, Thabiti, Anya Buile, says this, he should be the kind of man whom no one suspects of wrongdoing or immorality, that people would be utterly shocked to hear that those kind of things, immorality, uh, wrongdoing, would be charged of this man. Like, it should shock them they would ever, ever hear that something like that could happen with this guy, right? And you think about the, the mudslinging and the things that are happening even right now in, a, in an election year in politics. Paul's saying here that the elder, that an elder guy who's going to aspire to be and who's going to be a pastor in the local church should be the type of guy that if you were to put his name on a bulletin board and have people come along and, and comment, that no one would be able to post anything by his name. No uh, charge could be substantiated against this guy in respect to anything that's about to come in the next five verses. All right? So the things that we're about to see, there should be nothing that should be able to stick, right? about this guy should be above reproach, that such an accusation would be absurd to even think about. Let's see what those are. The third thing we see in these qualifications is his marriage. Verse 2, 
He should be the husband of one wife. Or literally in the Greek, this is three words in the Greek, one wife man. (laughs) Kind of reads a little more straightforward. And so when we translate it into English, we make it a little more reader friendly. And so we translate it, the most literal translation would be a one woman kind of man, right? One wife man in Greek. Now that's important because we'll see in a moment uh, that that in this list of qualifications, this is the first one. Like when you get into the specifics, remember the last one he gave us was sort of an umbrella approach to all of his, his reputation and all of his, his, his life should be above reproach. But when Paul begins to get into the specifics of what that looks like, he starts with his marriage. Why do you think that is? Why is the first place given to the elder's marriage? Because a guy's marriage, when you begin to look at a man, you can tell a whole lot about the kind of man that he is by the way he functions as a husband. All right? If he doesn't lead his wife well, if he doesn't lead as the head of his home, how can he lead Jesus' wife well? That's what we are as the church, the bride of Christ. And so if he can't lead his bride, how in the world can you expect him to lead Jesus' bride? That's the idea here. That's the logic here. I read a story about Winston Churchill. Uh, he was invited to a, uh, attend a, a formal banquet in London. And while there, the, the dignitaries were sort of asked these questions for the audience to hear. It was sort of a Q&A type thing. And Uh, The questioner asked, and this is the question, if you could not be who you are, who would you most like to be? All the other dignitaries began to answer one by one and had their different answers, but everyone in the room really wanted to know what Winston Churchill was going to say. What was Churchill's answer going to be? If he could not be himself, who else would he in the world most want to be? Well, Winston Churchill was seated by his beloved wife, Clemmie, there, and when it was finally his turn, he rose to give his answer, and he said, this is what he said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be, and then he paused, and this little bit of a silence created some tension in the room, and he grabbed his wife's hand, and he continued, I would most like to be Lady Churchill's second husband. Good answer, sir. <laughs> Mr. Churchill was clever in that, in that answer, but this is the sort of, the idea that we, that we have here, and even in the text, this one woman man mentality is the same that elders should have, like Mr. Churchill, that it's unthinkable. It's unimaginable that any other woman would, would, would be an appeal to him or an attraction for him. This passage has been interpreted in numerous ways throughout uh, the centuries of church history. And some have taught that this verse is, when it says one woman, that the emphasis is upon the number, right? So the example of that in, in ways that it's been taught in the past is that if a man had been divorced or if his wife had passed away and he'd been widowed, and if he remarries, then he's suddenly disqualified from being an, an elder. But the problem with that line of thinking, and, and if you take that interpretation, I can respect that. But the problem that that line of thinking can create is it can create a moral loophole, right? The moral loophole then is that the man could technically only be married to one woman, right? Like his entire life down at the courthouse and on paper, he's only married to to one woman and yet he can still not be a one woman kind of man. Does that make sense? That either because of adultery, hidden or known, Or because of his his thought life, his emotions, his affections, the desires of his heart, he's thinking about, he's setting his heart upon emotionally other women or another woman. And he's not a one-woman kind of man. And so to take this text as saying one woman in a legal paper sense, down at the courthouse kind of sense, could be creating a loophole that still spiritually this man is unqualified to be an elder. He's still only married to one woman, right? No. So when we understand this verse, we see the emphasis is not on the number. In other words, Paul's point here is not to be quantitative as much as it is to be qualitative. That the man in his heart and actions, both in his heart and in his actions, is truly a one-woman kind of man. There are no other women in his life. He is totally faithful to his bride. He is not a flirt. He is, he is, there are no other romances. There are no other relationships that could be mistaken for romantic relationships. He is a one-woman kind of man. Now that should be said of all of our men and our women, that they're one-women kind of men. Nope, other way around. <laughs> but it has to be said of our elders. 
It has to be said of our elders. If, if, if this is not the case, if there is any other woman that's competing for his affection's attention, then he is disqualified. Now, and I feel like I have to add this, that, that divorce should cause us to ask some really hard questions. Even if we come down on the interpretation that, that it's not an immediate disqualifier, which our church has not, uh, at least to this point we have not. When we see it, though, it, it requires of us that we ask some really hard, tough questions to that candidate uh, about his, his life and his commitment to his, his wife. And there should be no lingering questions that the woman he is married to is the only woman that he has eyes for and a heart for. So his marriage, let's continue. Number four, we see his self-mastery. Now, I'm getting this heading from, or this category, from John Stott, Kent Hughes, several other commentators uh, on Scripture have used this category, this idea of self-mastery, because it really encapsulates the next three descriptions or qualifications. Paul gives us them in in a string, right? Boom, 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 one after the other. And they all sort of fall under this idea of self-mastery. Look at your your Bible with me. It's sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. As we look at these quickly, you'll see what I mean by self-mastery. Sober-minded means that he's temperate. It means that, that you're able to think through things clearly and logically because you're not being swayed or controlled by anything, any substance, or anyone uh, else. Self-controlled means that you're sensible and disciplined. When you put self-controlled and sober-minded together, you realize something that Paul's going to say more explicitly in just a second, that to be an elder, you can't be a, a drunk or you can't be a stoner because under the influence of something else, whether it's drink or some drug or some substance or even some person, then you're not being led fully by the Holy Spirit, right? You may be a born-again Christian and you may be being led by the Spirit, but you're not as sensitive to the Spirit as you could be if you were not being manipulated by those things, right? And then finally, respectable. That's the last one that is used here in this string of things that fall under self-mastery. Stott says this, respectable here uh, means an outward expression of inward self-control, right? So sober-minded, self-control are things that happen internally in the elder. Respectable is what people notice on the outside when those things are at work on the inside. All three of those come under this idea of self-mastery. And really, you look at the scripture, self-control is a fruit of the spirit, right? It's what is produced as the Spirit lives inside all of us as Christians, as believers. And and so if you struggle with any number of these things, ask, am I being controlled by the Spirit? Because that's what the Spirit should be producing in all followers of Jesus. But it must characterize followers of Jesus that are going to serve as elders. This category of self-mastery is not something that we have the power to do. I want to be clear and make sure you hear me there. When I say self-mastery, it's not something that we do on our own. It's all a work of God from beginning to end. And so an elder must really, first and foremost, be mastered by God. And when he is, it looks like self-control, self-discipline, respectable, sober-minded. Those things are the fruit of being mastered by God. Number five, Fifth qualification here is his ministry. Now, this category, in, 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 the, in the string of things that Paul's going to say, this category covers the next two because in the list of things, these are what an elder must do. So before, and, and what we'll see after even this, is what he must be, who he must be, and how he must be characterized. This is what he must be able to do. In verse 2, it's still verse 2. It says he must be hospitable. Hospitable here in the Greek means love of strangers. It's a telltale sign or virtue of the people of God, right? Not just of, of elders. It has to be of elders, but of all the people of God. Romans 12, 13. Paul tells the church at Rome, contribute to the needs of the saints. And he says this, seek to show hospitality. He's not talking to elders there. He's talking to the church. He's talking to all Christians, all believers. And that seek to show, seek to show hospitality, seek to show, literally means in the Greek, run, pursue, chase, Let me ask you something. When's the last time that you chased someone down, that you ran after someone so that you could have them over for dinner? That's the literal sense of what we get when we read Romans 12, 13. Here's the thing, church. I Just confession from from one of your pastors, I praise God for my bride. Jessica embodies this virtue better than anyone I know. And I think she has probably literally chased maybe even some of you down so that we could have dinner. Or so that we could get together at a restaurant and fellowship over a meal. Many of you have experienced that from Jessica. And just a confession here. She is better at this 
naturally gifted in this way, sensitive to God's leading here and, and, and his working here, I have to work at it. She's naturally good at it, but neither of us and none of our elders are excused from it. Whether it's something that is built in you because you're a people person and you just thrive in social settings and you love being in big groups and around, or whether you're naturally more of an introvert, either way, an elder must be hospitable. As elders, we must be joyous hosts and invite people to our tables, invite people into our homes. The places of rest that God has given us should be used open-handedly with others. So this is your space. I want to host you, and I want you to be able to to fellowship around this table and, and, and rejoice with us in the gifts that God has given us. And the places that, that God has given us should be ours to extend to others. And then there's this second part that an elder must do. And, uh, and note here that this is not an exhaustive list. These are two things that an elder must do. But even in the book of 1 Timothy, you're going to see other things that Paul charges Timothy to do, right? So there's plenty of other things that our elders are, are going to do. These two he must be able to do, though. First is show hospitality. He must be a, a hospitable host. And then he must be able to teach. That's where the text continues. He must be able to teach. Uh, Paul gives us a, a further explanation in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Titus 1, 9 says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This means that elders must be students of the word, men who can compare scripture with scripture, men who know their Bibles, men who understand culture through the lens of scripture, and can communicate it effectively, right? That's the part that we often gloss over, I think, and and miss. Men who can, when necessary, defend the faith once passed down to the saints. It doesn't mean, I think we, we have to hear this with correction, It doesn't mean that every pastor is going to be as good of a teacher as the guy that you like to listen to on your podcast as you head to work on Monday morning. He may not be that good as that guy, but he must be able to teach. To be qualified to be an elder, he must be able to communicate clearly and effectively God's word. So the the implications of that are this. If he doesn't know God's word, he can't communicate it. He's clearly not qualified. Or if because of his personality or or whatever the case may be, people can't understand him or relate to him or he can't communicate it effectively, he's not qualified to be a pastor. Does that make make sense? You can can have 10 degrees from seminary and, and have all the Bible knowledge in the world, but if you can't communicate it clearly, you're not a teacher. You're just a really smart guy. On the other hand, you may be the coolest guy in the world. Be able to relate to all sorts of people. You may have people drawn to you because you're an incredible storyteller. And yet, because you don't know God's word or you refuse to teach God's word, you're not qualified to be an elder. Both of them have to be the case. Uh, He he must know and be able to effectively communicate God's word. That's what it means to teach. He must be able to teach. Let's continue. Number six, we see his temperance is specifically mentioned. Verse three, that he not be a drunkard. Now, drunkenness is not a new problem in our day. I don't know if you knew that. This is an ancient problem. And in fact, the church at Corinth had a problem uh, wherein Christians were sitting around getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. This is 1 Corinthians 11. Paul admonishes them and rebukes them for doing so. So this is a deal breaker for elders uh, today. I'm not just getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Certainly, they should not be doing that. I'm talking about getting drunk anytime is a deal breaker for an elder. And it's such a big deal for Paul that he repeats it in next week's text for the qualifications of a deacon, and he repeats it again in Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Elders cannot be, must not be, drunkards. Given to much wine is how Paul's going to say it next week with deacons. Note also, though, that's pretty clear and straightforward, but note also Paul's not requiring elders to take a position of total abstinence either. He's not saying you can have no alcohol, right? If God would have wanted to, desired to say that through the pen of the apostle Paul here, this is certainly where he would have done it. If he would have taken a position of total abstinence, this would have been the place where he would have made that qualification. Instead, the prohibition is against drunkenness, not alcohol in particular, leaving the possibility, hear me carefully, the possibility for alcohol in moderation with wisdom and discernment, but which could lead to and there's a case to be made for abstaining from alcohol for social reasons. Because of the culture you live in, because of the devastation that it has on families around the world. For those reasons, certainly an elder can take the position of total abstinence. 
But the scriptures are not binding in that way, right? So we have to be careful to, to, to understand the scriptures. If we're going to hold to the scriptures, we must hold to all of them, whether they're in line with or out of line with our culture. And so we must be careful not to make a law where God's not made a law. So that's his temperance. Let's go to number seven, his temperament, his temperament. Temperance, not being drunk, is logically followed by temperament, <laughs> right? So verse three, not violent. Well, that makes sense because a lot of times drunken people are violent. But even if you're not drunken, you still should not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, verse three says. I read a, a short article not long ago about an incident that happened in a church uh, not too long ago in Alabama, of all places. In the incident, in particular, the, the Alabama um, the church had dragged their, their furious choir director away from a layperson in the church. And uh, Erica Johnson was her name. And the reason they had dragged him away from her is because he had, and I quote, whacked her back and legs with his cane. When asked about this incident, the choir director said, and I quote, I just went wild because she kept singing off key. <laughs> quote, she was tone deaf, and I begged her for years not to sing out loud. Now, now we laugh, but whatever else could be said of this choir director, he was definitely not elder material. His temper, his temperament should, it was as elders uh, should not be. And I picked on Alabama, because I love any chance I can to, to pick on Alabama, and their choir directors, but... Just recently, a pastor that I went to seminary with in New Orleans was arrested because allegedly he had, in a fit of road rage, pulled out his handgun and shot at an 18-wheeler. These are clearly behaviors that contradict what Paul is commanding here in the text. These men are not elder qualified. Their temper has disqualified them. And so violent here in the Greek, when it says he, he not be violent but gentle, violent in the Greek literally means not a giver of blows. So, pastors shouldn't be duking it out down at the restaurant. They shouldn't be whacking their church members with a cane. They shouldn't be firing guns at an 18-wheeler. Gentleness is the elder's style. I'm a lover, not a fighter, right? That doesn't make you a sissy. That makes you like Jesus, is what Paul's telling us in 1 Timothy. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 says, Jesus was gentle and lowly in heart, and so should elders be also. They shouldn't be provoked to wrath. They shouldn't be guys that at the drop of a hat will throw down. And gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit for all Christians. It's a requirement for elders. Number eight, eight qualification here, is money. His money. Look at verse three. That the elder not be a lover of money. Now money, specifically his attitude towards it, plays a role in the elder's qualifications. O.S. Guinness, who's written a lot about money in the Christian's life, he says this. He says, if an elder is drunk on wine, you throw him out. But if he's drunk on money, you make him a deacon. <laughs> now, what he means there is uh, deacons serve in things like finance. So pastors should not be drunk on money or on wine. He's going to give us awesome instructions later on in chapter 6. I think O.S. Guinness was, was joking, by the way, when he said that. But in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul's going to exhort the entire church, not just elders, those who desire to be rich, Paul says, fall into temptation. They fall into a snare, into senseless harm and desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then here's this verse that people love to misquote, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. While this is true of all Christians, and all Christians should heed this exhortation not to fall into this trap, not to fall into this snare, what, what Paul calls it, it has to be the case for the pastor, for the elder. Now, to be clear, the point's not where he's rich or poor. doesn't say that. doesn't talk anything about how much he has in his bank account. The disqualification for a pastor and elder is that he be a lover of money. Some of the richest men that I know are not lovers of money, and as a result of having a lot of it, they are some of the most generous people that I know. And on the other hand, some of the most poor people struggle with being a lover of money, and perhaps even are poor because they're a lover of money and have, and have given everything to pursue it. Whatever the case, whether he has a lot of it or a little of it, the text commands that he not be a lover of it. If so, he's not qualified to lead God's people. 
Qualification number nine. His family. These last three qualifications, Paul gets a little more detailed. Earlier, he's just listing them, sometimes with just a comma between them. Now, in these last three, he's going to get a little more uh, detailed and explain a little more. Look at verse 4. It says, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, the clear connection here to what we're studying is the word household, right? In verse 4, you see it talk about the elder's household. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 15, which we've repeated numerous times in our study of 1 Timothy. Remember, that's the theme verse. That's why Paul says he's writing to Timothy, so that you may know how to behave, Paul says, in God's household. That's the same word he's using there. God's household, the elder's household. And so the point is clear. The man who fails to lead in his household with his family under his roof can't possibly lead God's household, God's family. There's no godliness. If there's no order in his home, how can you expect there to be godliness and order in God's household as he leads it, right? Same man can't lead differently in his house and in God's house. And so as we elect pastors, as we elect elders, we observe and we interview their families, in particular their wives. And we ask their wives hard questions. We ask things like, how do they lead in their home? How does he take his role as the, the head of his home? How does he lead consistently with you as his, his wife and with your, your kids in the home? Is he consistently the man that we see at church or is he different in the home? Are his kids submissive? Verse 4. Are they obedient? Do they follow him? Because he's expected that out of them. His authority over them is such that he expects obedience and they submit. Now, those are pretty high stakes, right? <laughs> I say this with fear and trembling because my kids may be the ones swinging from the chandeliers in a few moments. All right? So, so even as I say this, it's, it's with trepidation. But here's the thing, and, and, and I feel like this has to be said. This isn't to say that pastor's kids are going to be perfect, Right? But, or, or and let me just add this, it's, it's not to say that pastors' kids are going to be perfect or that pastors' elders are going to do it perfectly every time. They're not going to make mistakes as parents. I'll be the first to admit, I've made some yesterday. And I, the only reason I haven't made them this morning is I haven't seen my kids yet, right? Like, we make mistakes as parents, but the, the trend should be, the, the, the pattern should be that in his life, there is consistency as dad and as husband, he's leading in his home well. His kids are submissive. They're following his authority. That's the pattern in his home. I think some of the hardest things we can do is expect pastor's kids, deacon's kids, elder's kids to be perfect. Right? It puts an expectation on them that, that, is, that is impossible to live up to. Uh, so, number 10. Number 10. We see uh, the, the 10th qualification is his maturity. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, the logic here is clear. The language is incredibly expressive and, and, and a lot of imagery here. Even in the Greek, it's, it's especially so. This idea of being puffed up is literally filled with smoke or filled with hot air. And so the, the idea here is that his own hot air, right? Like he, he loves to hear himself talk. If he's an immature Christian, he preaches because he gets kicks out of authority or he just loves to exert a, 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 assert a power and position. Or he can be puffed up, filled with smoke, because you do an incredible job encouraging him. And as you encourage this young, immature pastor, he gets puffed up and it goes to his head and he begins to think everything's about him because you've told him how good a job he did, which you should. That's the admonition here. Either way, both of these should be avoided, whether it's he's getting puffed up by his own hot air or by yours, it should be avoided by selecting elders that are mature Christians. And that's not to say anything about how many years he's been alive, right? He's going to tell Timothy here, let no one look down upon you for your youth. This is about his maturity before Christ. Kent Hughes says this, humility seasoned by experience is an indispensable qualification for eldership. Humility seasoned by experience. That's what this is, is getting at here, that he should be a mature follower of Christ, walked with Christ long enough to he's, he's a mature, seasoned believer. And then 11th, and we've mentioned this one already, his reputation, again, or I put on the screen, times two, right? Because that's where he started, and that's where he's going to end. He's going to go full circle. It boils all the way down to his reputation, verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Well thought of literally means a beautiful witness. You have a beautiful witness? 
Our elders must have a beautiful witness. By God's spirit, I pray that you do too. I pray that you desire to have a beautiful witness with outsiders, that when they hear your name, if they know you, if you have a reputation among outsiders, they think, what a beautiful witness they've had. So those are the qualifications. Those are the baseline minimum for what an elder should be and should do as he leads the church to fulfill its mission. And that's where I really want to circle back to in the last couple minutes that we have left. The reason all of this is important and the reason Paul is bringing all this under his teaching in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that it goes back to his mission statement in, in chapter 2 and then again that we'll see in chapter 3. He desires the salvation of all peoples. That Christ died for the salvation of all people. So our local body here at Popo Spring, led by pastors, uh, the, the local body here that's trained, equipped, guarded, fed, led, the local body here, just like in Ephesus, has a global mission of getting the gospel there, to every corner of the globe, to every part of this planet, because Jesus desires to save people from every corner of this globe, every part of this planet. And that's the purpose behind this. These, these are the reasons you have had elders entrusted to you, church, is so that you would be about the mission you've been commanded to. The, the, the right behavior in the household of God, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, necessarily includes a mission to extend the glorious gospel to every person. All of this is being tucked under that. So here are your elders to lead you to that end. That's why it's essential that we understand our prayer life, chapter 2. Why? Because God wants to save the nations. That's why we understand our roles of, as men and women, the gender roles that God's ordained in Scripture, chapter 2, because it all functions to this same mission and same purpose. That's why we understand the functionality and qualifications of our leaders, chapter 3, and even next week with deacons that serve the body in chapter 3. All of it's pointing to this same mission. And so let me, let me prime the pump real quickly for you where we're headed in the text next week. If you read ahead, maybe you already have, next week we're going to see the qualifications for a deacon. Many of them are similar or even the same wording as that of an elder. There are some differences, and so we'll quickly walk through the text and note those differences, elder and deacon. Uh, but the majority of our time next week, we want to spend looking at and, and taking away application in that God has given us these offices. He's given these specific offices of pastor, elder, and deacon to the church for this global mission. So what does it look like here at Poplar Spring? How does it play out among us as a church body, as a local gathered body of believers? So next week, we'll, we'll do that. We'll spend some time. I think it's going to be really helpful for us as a church to see elder and deacon side by side in the scriptures and then in our body, how it plays out, what it looks like. But here's the thing. Again, all of this circling back to this mission that God has given us to take the gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And it would be a shameful thing for us to gather this morning and me not take that gospel to you. And with a text like this that's given us the qualifications for an elder, uh, I don't want us to leave without celebrating that gospel. And so if you're here this morning and you've never given your heart and life to Christ, this is what's on the table. This is that mission that Paul is talking about. This is that reason for which Christ died, chapter 2. Every one of us, every single one of us, have chosen to, to sin against a holy God. We've messed up. We've broken his law and his rule. Every one of us. And because of that, we're separated from a holy God. And if we were to die right now in that state, separated from a holy God, we would spend all of eternity in a literal place called hell. But, it's the greatest but in all of the world, but Jesus came and he lived the perfect life we could not live. And he died on the cross he died on the cross in our place, taking our sin on himself so that if we place our faith and trust in him, we receive his righteousness. That's the good news. That's what we take to the nations. That's why we have pastors and elders, so that we're given a structure and a form in which we can take that news of Christ's saving death to every person in this community and around the world. So if you're here today and you've never done that, You've never given your heart and life to Christ and confessed with your mouth, I'm a sinner, Jesus, and I need your death as, as my salvation. I need to, to, to call upon you and confess my sins that your death would be in my place. Do that today. We're not going to have a, a, a public ask you to walk down an aisle type invitation, but this is the invitation. That's your chance. Today is your chance. Don't go to sleep without knowing that you've given your heart and life to Christ. That's why all of this has taken place. That's why we would take time and study through a text about elder qualifications on a Sunday morning because that news is worth getting to every part of our planet. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the day and what a, what a beautiful day it is.
God, it reminds us that with the changing of the seasons and the changing of the temperature that, God, you are sovereign and in control of all things. And as a sovereign and good and gracious God, you have made a way of salvation possible for each and every one of us who would call upon Christ. So God, if there are those, even under the sound of my voice right now, that have never done that, God, I pray that by your spirit you would lead them, that even right now they would sense that you're calling them, their name, and today would be the day of salvation. God, for the rest, for those of us that have been walking with you and, and we know you and we're a follower of Jesus, God, I pray texts like this would convict us, that as you give us instructions on what the church should look like and what its leadership should look like, that it would convict each and every one of us that we would be seeing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, each and every one of us, as we live to follow King Jesus. And so God, go with us this week. Help us to be on mission for you. Help us to take this good news of, of, of a king who's defeated sin and death. Help us to take that news to our community, our neighborhood, our workplace. Help us to take it to the lost in every, every nation, every corner of this planet. God, we pray for our, our nation, our country right now, and everything that's going on around us. God, help us to be a light in darkness. God, I give you ourselves, I give you me, I give you this body of believers at Papua Spring. God, we want to honor you. We want to lift high and magnify the name of Christ. So by your spirit, help us to do that. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. A few announcements for you, and then we'll be dismissed. First is this, uh, tomorrow at 11 o'clock, uh, Miss Linda K. Mullen's funeral will be, uh, service will be held at Pine Ridge uh, Cemetery, right up the road here on Pine Ridge Road. It's a family-only uh, service uh, due to the, the, the COVID-19 and the concerns there. They've asked for it to be only family at that, but I would ask you to pray for them uh, in, in this time of loss as they grieve and as we celebrate the, the life of Miss Linda K. Mullen. Uh, K. Mullen is what you would know her by. Um, so anyways, pray for, for this family. Second is this, uh, October 17th, there's a ladies' movie night. Uh, so all you ladies are invited to Jane Wolfe's house uh, for a, a movie night that night. Uh, that'll be a good time. We've, we've had uh, the youth group over there for different things, different uh, events, a bonfire, different things. She's got a beautiful property and place to entertain and to host uh, groups like this. And so you will enjoy it, I promise. Ladies, come out and enjoy a time of fellowship together. If you want more information on that, it's on the ladies' Facebook page, or you can talk to Tracy Brafford. And then last, um, the North Carolina Missions Offering goes through the month of September. And so you have today and uh, another Sunday to, to give to that missions offering. Uh, it goes to do mission work in our state. Every dollar that you give in that yellow envelope on your pew or we have some near the entrances and exits, if, uh, if you put money in that yellow envelope, it goes to the North Carolina missions offering that does many things across our state. I think we have a video keyed up so you can just real quickly, it's a short video to watch and see how that offering will be used. So you guys check out the screens. Uh, right now.